The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 474th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I'm your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're heading to New England. And we're going to be visiting the little town of Duxbury. There's a few haunted locations here that we're going to be sharing with everyone. Looking forward to it. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the spectacular crew, Justin, Christina with a K, Lori with an IE, and Brandy with a Y. Thank you for joining us in the Spooktacular crew. And now this moment, Noddity. The moment in Oddity was suggested by Chelsea Flowers. There once was a Rissa's dolphin named Polaris Jack who lived in New Zealand. This was an uncommon species to be found in New Zealand, with only 12 having been previously reported in that area. Interestingly, Rissos look a bit more like a beluga whale, although they do have a curved dorsal fin similar to a bottlenose dolphin, where beluga lacks one. Rissos are similar in size to a bottlenose dolphin as well. Polaris Jack was a special creature. This beautiful and wise delphinidin made it his habit for 24 years to guide ships through the dangerous French Pass. The channel was known for shipwrecks due to its dangerous currents and rocks. Oftentimes, if a ship did not see Polaris Jack, they would wait to proceed until he appeared. This special chap received his moniker from a marine navigational instrument called a Polaris. Although his sex was never known, I suppose the name Jack just went well with Polaris and this name stuck. Jack gained fame due to his helpful nature, earning him articles in newspapers and even his own postcards. Shockingly, in 1904, someone aboard the SS Penguin tried to shoot Polaris Jack. This prompted the creation of a law where he became protected by the Order and Council under the Sea Fisheries Act on the 26th of September in 1904. Polaris Jack remained protected by that law until his disappearance in 1912. We know that dolphins are extremely intelligent, but the fact that this dandy, dedicated Delphinidae guided many ships safely through such dangerous waters successfully certainly is odd. Grab your slippers, hot chocolate, flashlight, and maybe even that baseball bat. And now, this month in history. 
month of February on the 6th, in 1911, 40th President of the United States, Ronald Reagan, was born. He entered the world in Tampico, Illinois. The young Ronald's upbringing was greatly influenced by his mother's spirituality and her commitment to the Disciples of Christ and the social gospel. When Reagan entered college, he was an indifferent student, earning a C-average grade. He was, however, quite involved in campus politics, sports, drama, and was even elected student body president. After graduating from Eureka College with a Bachelor of Arts degree, he worked as a sports announcer for four football games in the Big Ten Conference. After that, he worked for WHO Radio as an announcer for the Chicago Cubs. While traveling to California for the team's spring training, Ronald took a screen test, which led to a seven-year contract with Warner Brothers Studios. His debut film was Love is in the Air in 1937. He appeared in many films before serving in the military beginning in April of 1942. World War II interrupted Reagan's movie stardom, and Warner Brothers became concerned about the star's ability to generate ticket sales. Likewise, Reagan was dissatisfied with the parts he was being given. After contract renegotiations, he was able to freelance with Paramount and Universal Pictures. In March of 1947, he was elected as president of the Screen Actors Guild, which he remained president of until November of 1952. However, seven years later, he was re-elected as president of SAG from November of 1959 to June of 1960. Just as Reagan dabbled in campus politics during college, he also did so during his acting career. By January of 1966, he announced that he was throwing his hat in the ring for the California gubernatorial election. Ultimately, Reagan ended up running against Pat Brown and was portrayed by the press as being, quote, monumentally ignorant of state issues. At the end of the election, Ronald Reagan won by a landslide. However, after serving two terms as governor of California, he declined a third term and set his sights on the presidency of the nation. In the general election, Reagan ended up being pitted against Jimmy Carter. During a debate on October 28, 1980, Reagan asked the audience a question. Are you better off today than you were four years ago? The answers that were tagged on to Carter's coattails were a resounding no, as his campaign numbers plummeted. On election day, Ronald Reagan won a huge popular vote, electoral victory, and was sworn into office on January 20th in 1981 as the 40th president of the United States of America. The historic seaside town of Duxbury, Massachusetts, is covered in dune grass with pebbled shores and crisp air touched with salt and the scent of pine and cedar and is home to several haunted locations. The Alden Inn dates back to the first pilgrims to settle the Plymouth area and is rumored to be haunted by the Aldens who arrived on the Mayflower. The Sun Tavern Inn had been home to the last Duxbury hermit who still hangs out in the afterlife. And the Gurnet Light gave America their first female lightkeeper, who is still taking care of the place after death. Join us as we share the history and hauntings of Duxbury, Massachusetts. The future Duxbury, Massachusetts was first inhabited by indigenous people starting in 12,000 BC. The Wampanoag were here when the first European settlers came. They had named the area Matakiset, which meant place of many fish. And they not only fished, but hunted for game and grew crops. Pilgrims were the first Europeans to settle. Many had traveled the 10 miles north from Plymouth around 1627. 
the families would work their farms in the summer and then return to Plymouth in the winter. By 1637, Duxbury was officially incorporated and was allowed to build their own church. Many leaders rose up at this time, like Captain Miles Standish, Elder William Brewster, and John Alden. Many of these early settlers are buried at the old burying ground on Chestnut Street, next to the site of the original meeting house. Duxbury was a town against loyalists during the Revolutionary War, and many of its men served during the Siege of Boston in 1776. Many Duxbury fishermen served as privateers, or as we like to say, pirates. Arr. Eventually, Duxbury would become a place of shipyards and was the largest producer of sailing vessels on the South Shore. Many federal period houses still exist in the town today. One of these old homes, the Alden House, predates the federal period by more than 100 years. The Mayflower had arrived in Cape Cod in 1620, and two passengers on board the ship were John Alden and Priscilla Mullins. John was aboard the ship serving as a cooper, which was the crewman in charge of the ship's barrels. I think not only did they maybe keep track of provisions, but I think he actually built the barrels, repaired the barrels, because they always show him with a picture where he's like holding a hammer and stuff. Oh, interesting. He was not a pilgrim, but decided to stay on in Plymouth and sign the Mayflower Compact. He was the youngest man to sign the document and the last survivor. One of the reasons he made that decision was probably because of Priscilla Mullins, who was a pilgrim traveling with her family on the Mayflower. Priscilla's entire family had died in that first harsh winter in Plymouth. The couple had fallen in love and probably married in 1622 and eventually had 10 children. The love of this couple was praised in Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem, The Courtship of Miles Standish. Most of the poem is considered lore rather than historical fact, but Longfellow was a descendant of the couple and claimed it was from oral tradition passed down by the family. It features a love triangle between Miles Standish and John and Priscilla. The couple were given a parcel of land on a knoll overlooking the Bluefish River in 1627, and they started a homestead. This location is now occupied by Duxbury Junior High School. They wouldn't build Alden House until 1653, which is located at 105 Alden Street. I mean, can you imagine a house that dates back to that time? That's why I love traveling up the East Coast, just because there's so much more history just due to the age of this section of the United States. Yeah, I mean, you came from California. I came from Colorado. So we'd seen like old mining towns and stuff like that. And you think, oh, wow, this is so old. And then you come over here to the East Coast and it's like, oh, those things were like babies. <laughs> exactly. There. That date, the house being built in 1653 is according to tradition. Archaeological study has the house being built in 1700, which would have been after the Aldens were already deceased. Historically, they did live at this location, but probably in a different home. I don't really know what's going on here. What we know for sure is that the Aldens own this land and that they had homes on it. It's an impossibility for them to have lived in the one that's actually named for them today, if the archaeological study is accurate. And then, of course, this is now a National Historic Site. These properties were always in the ownership of the Alden family until they became those historic sites. The Alden House is a two-story timber box frame house that is plank-sheathed with five bays, a central chimney, and a gable roof. This represents first-period New England colonial architecture. The house had a parlor, and the kitchen was inside on the north side of the first floor. Interesting. That's very interesting. The huge fireplace in here has the original bricks made from clay, and there's a beehive oven at the back that connects to the central chimney. The house also has a cellar and an attic. 
which again, if you're thinking about this time period, that was a bit of a luxury to build all that in there. Very advanced for the times. And usually kitchens were in a separate building or at least on the backside, separated from the home in case of fire. John Alden served the Plymouth Colony in every way possible, including as acting governor a couple of times. His namesake son was accused of witchcraft in Salem, Massachusetts, when he was 70 years old in 1692. He thankfully wasn't killed during the hysteria. The Alden House was purchased by Charles L. Alden in 1883 from John T. Alden's guardian. The Alden family formed the Alden Kindred in the early 1900s, and they purchased the Alden House and 2.7 acres in 1907. John Alden and his wife Sylvia lived in the house at the time, and they continued to stay there until 1920. They were a musical family and conducted jazz sessions often, playing the piano, drums, flute, and clarinet. Charles L. Alden continued to be an influence on the house and did a lot of restoration in the 1930s. He gave tours of the house as well. So he's considered their first tour guide, kind of like how we had the one with the Whaley House. Yeah, very cool. So you have a family member who's the first tour guide again. It's pretty cool. The house later was used as an antique shop by two sisters and then became the museum that it is today. A major restoration was finished in 2008. And that Alden Kindred is still an organization. It's a genealogical, if you belong to this family, you're part of it. And they actually have family reunions every year, too. That's awesome. I love that. So you can get together and be like, yeah, that's my fifth cousin, 20 times removed. (laughs) (laughs) Good grief. And Aunt Polly died in the house in 1882 at the age of 93, and people believe one of the several apparitions here is her. Children's spirits have been seen in the house. A crying child has been witnessed coming down the stairs. Another child has been seen standing at the window, and it has asked people, where are they going? Charles Alden loved the house enough to stick around and is said to haunt the place. Visitors have also reported the phantom scent of flowers. One of the docents said, So they seem rather friendly, but who knows what they would have to tell. People enjoy this wonderful story that dates back to that time period and how a family helped shape New England. And of course, there are people who claim that the original Aldens are here as well, even though they didn't necessarily live in this house. It's their property, so maybe they're walking through occasionally. I don't know. Next up, we have the Sun Tavern, and this was suggested by Jen Hendricks, and she's the inspiration really behind this whole show because... I initially was just doing it on the Sun Tavern, and I was like, well, there's really not enough here to do a full show. I wonder if there's other haunted stuff in this town, and sure enough, I found the other two locations then. The Sun Tavern in Duxbury, Massachusetts, is a favorite of locals on the South Shore because of its upscale American cuisine and warm hospitality. The building has been around for over 280 years and had once been home to the last Duxbury hermit. There was a man named Lysander Walker, who lived in the house at the end of the 19th century. He had lived here with his wife, but after she died, he became a recluse. He had a system with the kids in town that would get him provisions. When he needed something, he would hang an American flag at the corner of his house. On October 3, 1928, an 11-year-old girl named Gladys Belknap was walking by the house and saw that the American flag was at the corner of the house. But on this day, it was hung upside down. For people who don't know, this is a sign of distress. Gladys went into town and got some men to return with her, and when they entered the house, they found Lysander sitting on the sofa with a bullet in his head and a revolver tightly gripped in his hand lying beside him on the couch. The young girl never forgot this day and even sent a postcard to the owners of the restaurant confirming the story. 
Yeah, so I don't know if they managed to track her down and asked her, is this a true story that people have been telling about the place? And she's like, yep, I remember that day distinctly. Very sad. Yeah, just a horrible 11-year-old girl having to, at least she didn't go into the house. So that's good. Right. The next owner of the house was Father Francis Keegan, and he used it as a summer residence. There was a young woman who wanted to attend the Salem State Normal School, and Father Keegan financed her education. Once she graduated, Father Keegan suggested that his residence would make the perfect spot for a tavern. And in the early 1930s, Mary opened up a small restaurant that was very successful. I just think it's very cute. You've got this priest who sends this girl off to school. And then when she comes back, he goes, I don't know if she went for business or something. He said, why don't you open up my house as a restaurant? I think it's so sweet. Yeah. People raved about the meals and the beautiful flowers she decorated the place with. A man named David Wells became the next owner of the house in 1964, and he named his establishment Fiddler's Green Restaurant, and it was like an English pub. Later, it became Buck's Tavern, and then in 1987, the place became the Sun Tavern, and that name is stuck up into the present. Larry and Carol Friedman took ownership of the tavern in 1996, and they held it until 2001. They sold it, but returned again in 2009, and then sold it in 2017 to Gary and Deborah James. Gary is the executive chef at the restaurant and has been since 2013. So he basically was their executive chef. They decided that they didn't want it anymore. It was getting to be too much. So then he bought it from them, but they still have their fingers in it. So they're still a part of it. They just don't own it, I guess. That's cool. Yeah. And I love that he had been the executive chef and loved it so much that he wanted to go ahead and keep it. I'm telling you the menu on this place. Oh, if you live in the area, you got to go there. It looks like it's just scrumptious. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. Many of the owners of this establishment have had paranormal experiences. First person to experience a ghost here was David Wells. Many nights when Wells would be locking up the restaurant, one candle would relight. Sometimes he would put the candle out again and it would relight before he went back out the door. Talk about a fire hazard. No kidding. Stop (laughs) lighting the candle, darn it. Don't they tell you to make sure your candles are out before you leave places? Then you have a ghost who just keeps relighting them. It's like, thanks a lot. I mean, David was trying. He was. (laughs) When David would tell people that he had a ghost in the restaurant, he would be met with ridicule. Nobody believed him until one fateful night, the alarm went off and the police responded. They checked the entire building and found nothing. So they left the house, locked the door, and started up the walk when they heard the distinct sound of footsteps in the restaurant. They both grabbed their guns and headed back inside the restaurant and again found no one inside. Nobody teased David about his ghost after that. I bet not. Especially not the police. The Freedmans had many experiences. When they first took ownership in 1996, the basement flooded. Larry put on some waders and started the process of drying out the basement. He used a generator to run a sump pump and temporary lighting. Larry said, all of a sudden the light goes off, generator stops, water stops, and I'm yelling up through the window. Not a word. I don't hear a word out of them because he's got a couple people that are upstairs supposed to be helping him. Suddenly I feel these arms around me. To this day, I tell this story, it wigs me out. It would wig me out too if I'm like, okay, something shut everything off. And it doesn't say exactly how this entity was putting its arms around him. Was it like hugging him or was it like <laughs> restraining know, him? Trying to squeeze you to death. That made me laugh though, because I haven't heard wigs me out in years. <laughs> <that> no. <term. laughs> well, if you think about it, it was back in the 90s. So exactly. 
The lights came on moments later and Larry saw that he was still alone in the basement. Okay, so this is even scarier. So it's pitch black down there and he's getting arms around him. He hollered for his brother-in-law who was upstairs. His brother-in-law told him that the generator was still running and had never stopped. What? So how did everything just shut off? One evening, the police called to tell Larry that they had received a 911 call from the restaurant. Larry said that the place was empty, so it was impossible for the call to have come from the restaurant, and the number must have been wrong. But the police said that there was no doubt it came from the payphone in the restaurant. And, of course, there was no one in the restaurant when it was checked. Lysander is thought to be the ghost here, and he seems to really like the phone because his apparition has been seen standing in front of it. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know if he ever used the phone back in the day, but it seemed like he just used the flag to communicate, not not a phone, so... And I wonder if his spirit was having the reaction after committing suicide of trying to call 911 or he wanted to. That was his desire in the afterlife as soon as his spirit left his body. I don't know. So this, of course, made me wonder, well, when did 911 start? Because I'm like, would that have even been anything he would have known? Right. Which it wouldn't have been. The first call to 911 was placed in February of 1968. Interesting. So I don't know if this is, I mean, if it was to be his spirit that's doing something like calling 911. It'd be something that he's learned over the time because well, we wondered if he's intelligent, then the way that I interpret it, ghosts have to be able to continue to learn. I mean, I think they have a conscience. I hope they do because we're all going to be them eventually for them to be able to use the equipment that we have and stuff. Clearly, they understand technology and the changing, although we have had some that will come through and be like, this is witchcraft because they don't right. really know what's going on. Heavy disembodied footsteps are heard throughout the building. The ladies' room is haunted. Of course it is. (laughs) The towel dispenser has dispensed towels on its own. Whatever spirit is here seems to be helpful at times. A man was choking in the restaurant one night. Larry tells the story this way. One busy Saturday, my bartender starts screaming, Larry, Larry. I run up to the bar and there's a man choking. I was just about to give him the Heimlich maneuver when he spit out his food. He turns around to me and says, thank you. I said, I didn't even get to touch you. He turns to the woman next to him and says, thank you. And she said, no one touched you. He said, someone hit me on my back. Whoa, that's pretty weird. That's great. He just turned around. Hey, thanks. Thanks. Well, then who the hell hit me? (laughs) During an interview Larry was giving, three loud bangs were heard in the dining room and were caught on the recording of the interview. They also heard a choking sound when Larry was recounting the story about the guests who choked. So perhaps the ghost has a sense of humor, too. Kind of like us catching that gulp, we think, in the (laughs) Whaley house when we're asking about what did you eat or what was your favorite food or something. Yes, indeed. In 2009, Larry decided to allow some paranormal investigators to come into the restaurant. Larry said they went down to the basement, and the basement is a trip in itself. It's an old basement. It's an old stone wall. Most of the staff won't go down there. But they did a recording down there and they heard a very young girl's voice saying, Larry's coming, Larry's coming, which is mind blowing. And then a man's voice, an older voice saying, get out. I'm guessing that was Lysander. The little girl's voice that was caught is thought to be one of two girls who died in the house. They mostly haunt the upstairs, but apparently they chose the basement that time. And this again answers a question that we have and we've had other people ask us in emails do other ghosts know that they're in each other's spaces? And it would seem to me that Lysander and these two girls who did not live in this place at the same time are interacting in the afterlife. Could be. 
Gary James has had experiences as well. He definitely feels like he had one encounter with Lysander. He said, I was standing out back behind the restaurant with Larry talking, and I see this shadow approaching us and then take off. I thought it was somebody trying to break into cars. A server told James one night that she thought she saw a man sitting at one of the restaurant's tables after the restaurant was closed. When she mentioned it to other staff members, they looked at her funny because none of them could see the man. And then next we have the Gurnet Light. Some people call this the Plymouth Light as well, but locals call it Gurnet Light, so that's why we called it that. It's around 10 miles away from the Sun Tavern Inn. This is the oldest freestanding wooden lighthouse in the United States. Samuel de Champlain was a French explorer and cartographer, and he mapped out Clark's Island and the Gurnet in 1638. The Gurnet is a 27-acre peninsula forming the northern boundary of Plymouth Bay, and this is where the lighthouse is located. This area was named after a similar area in the English Channel that is home to the Gurnet Fish. The Massachusetts legislature voted to erect the first Plymouth Lighthouse, which was completed in 1768. This was actually just a wooden house that was 15 feet by 30 feet and had lanterns on each end of the roof. Not exactly what we're used to seeing in our modern-day lighthouses. The first keeper was a surgeon named John Thomas, who actually owned the land that the lighthouse was built upon. It was kind of like... He told the government he'd lease the land if they let him run the place. Well, there you go. He served in this capacity until the Revolutionary War started, and he joined the Continental Army. His first duty was to gather a regiment of men from Plymouth to help Boston repel the British during the Siege of Boston. Later, he was given the rank of general and marched his troops into Quebec, where he contracted smallpox. The disease took his life on June 2, 1776. When John left the lighthouse, there was a need for a new keeper. Obviously, all the able-bodied men were joining the war effort. John's wife, Hannah, took over the duties, and she continued on after his death. She was also raising three children at the time. There were times that the lighthouse beacons were not lit during the war, and this was to protect Fort Andrew that was on the Gurnett Point from being attacked. Some of the accounts claim that one of the lighthouse's beacons was destroyed by cannon fire from the British HMS Niger when it exchanged blasts with the fort. In 1778, Plymouth would suffer its worst shipwreck due to a massive winter storm. General Arnold was in charge of a vessel that was headed for Plymouth's inner harbor, but the storm featured blizzard conditions with hurricane-force winds. So the general opted to anchor outside of the bay and ride out the storm. The ship ran aground on white flats and was stranded with no way for the crew to get to safety. The residents of Gurnett decided to build a causeway over the ice, but it took too long, and 72 of the 100 men on board froze to death. After the war, Hannah remained on as keeper, but decided to hire Nathaniel Burgess to take over those duties in 1786. Hannah had been the first female lighthouse keeper in America. That same year, a sloop got caught on a sandbar near Gurnett during a blizzard. Two of the crew hiked the seven miles to the lighthouse to get help, and it's believed that Hannah Thomas's son was the one who went to bring back the rest of the crew. His name was also John, and he took over as keeper in 1790. He was making $200 a year for that job. The lighthouse was destroyed in a fire on July 2, 1801, and local merchants helped fund the building of a temporary beacon. The government had always leased the land under the lighthouse, but now they bought it from the Thomas family and built two 22-foot-tall lighthouses spaced 30 feet apart from each other in 1803. On October 16, 1812, Joseph Uncle Joe Burgess became the keeper. He had been the son of former keeper Nathaniel. Uncle Joe maintained the lighthouse until 1851, and during that time, tragedy struck. 
His daughter Eunice was 16 when she fell in love with a soldier at Fort Andrew. The couple wanted to marry, and Uncle Joe refused to allow that to happen. Eunice became depressed and leapt to her death from a rock that has been nicknamed Lover's Rock. Many people complain that the twin towers of the lighthouse were too close together and caused the two lamps to appear as one, but nothing was done to rectify this until the towers became so, quote, decayed a state as to be unworthy of repair. That's pretty bad. Two new octagonal towers were built in 1842, although the distance between was only increased by a foot. A new spacious keeper's dwelling was also erected at that time. Fourth-order lenses were added in 1879 as the six-order lights from 1856 were becoming confused with regular house lights. I'm assuming they weren't very bright or something, if you thought it was just people's house lights? Perhaps. And some sailors even complained that they still couldn't see the lights at all. There was a push to space the towers away from each other more, but this meant a new site needed to be found, and that proved difficult. In the early 1900s, people were invited to visit the lighthouse. It was decided that the lighthouse needed a foghorn. And so a 1,500-pound fog bell that was mounted on a wooden pyramidal tower and pulled by a striking machine was erected in 1907. This was upgraded to a first-class day-balled trumpet in 1909, which sounded a three-second blast every 15 seconds. The bell remained as a backup. I'm sure the neighbors loved it. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you weren't living too close to that place. It's like every 15 seconds. Are you kidding? Another shipwreck occurred in 1920 when the minesweeper USS Swan was trying to refloat a wrecked oil barge in Cape Cod Bay, and some big waves threw the vessel up on the beach near the lighthouse. The keeper and his assistant, along with the Garnett Beach Coast Guard, saved all 56 sailors aboard. The minesweeper was eventually refloated and made its way to Pearl Harbor, where it would be when that location was attacked during World War II. One of the towers was torn down in 1924, and the other tower received a revolving beacon, which had one flash alternating with a group of two flashes every 20 seconds. The Davis family took over duties in 1925. Frank and Olive Davis had three children, and one of them, Frank Arthur, became a licensed lobsterman at the age of nine. Can you imagine? No, that's incredible. I'd be terrified for him, though. I know. How did his mom (laughs) let him go out? He had his own boat and traps and compared himself to Tom Sawyer. (laughs) Well, I would as well. I guess. I mean, it's better (laughs) than being out on a raft. He at least had a boat. The old keeper's house was demolished in 1963 and a new ranch style house was built. Unbelievably, at the time, this was the only place on the peninsula that had electricity 24 hours a day. Residents would stop by for a visit so they could watch TV, use the phone or do their laundry. Can you imagine? They're like, hey, I just came to say hi. What do you got on the TV over there? (laughs) The big game's on. Everybody's going to the lighthouse to watch it. I feel like I'm being used. (laughs) (laughs) Why is everybody always bringing their laundry here? They only love me for my electricity. They're not really my friends. (laughs) The station was automated in 1986. The lighthouse has been off limits to the public except for the occasional open house to allow the public to visit. But there's always someone here. Hannah Thomas must have loved the lighthouse because she is reputedly here in the afterlife. People claim to see her apparition. A photographer named Bob Shanklin spent the night at the lighthouse with his wife, Sandra, as he had been hired to take at-dawn pictures. And I guess that makes sense. You'd have to stay overnight if you want to catch the sun just coming up. He awoke in the middle of the night and claimed to have seen the ghost of a woman who only appeared from the waist up, wearing period clothing with long, dark hair like Hannah's. Bob said she had the saddest eyes he had ever seen. 
Oh. So I'm wondering if it's going back to the fact that she lost her husband. Yeah, maybe. Some people think that she's back at the lighthouse looking for him. I don't know. Duxbury is a quaint historic seaside town with links back to the original Plymouth colony. Are some of the spirits from that bygone era still hanging around in the afterlife? Are these locations in Duxbury, Massachusetts haunted? That is for you to decide. Sounds like a cute little town to check out. Yes, indeed. We'd love to have you check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you have some feedback for us, you can send that to us at historygoesbump at gmail.com or any of our various social media. And we have a lot of feedback, Kelly. People loved our last episode on Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. We heard from Timbo over on Facebook. Good morning, y'all. Just wanted to say, longtime listener, three years or more, just wanted to say, keep up the outstanding job. Your Wright-Patterson episode might be one of my favorites you all have done. I'm a huge museum, presidential libraries person, and National Museum of the Air Force is outstanding. One of the coolest museums I've ever visited. Highly recommend. It is huge with the number of planes that are there. They even have some of the first Air Force ones on display. And Melissa sent us an email. Good morning, guys. I just listened to the episode on the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. This episode was right up my alley. I'm a lover and collector of all things World War II, along with antiques from that era, especially uranium glass. My home office is decorated in World War II memorabilia and artifacts. I wanted to share a pic of my biggest treasure from World War II, our 1942 Stearman PT-17 biplane. We have all the documents pertaining to the plane from 1946 after it was retired from the Navy. It was completely restored in 2018 to the condition you see now. And she said I could share those pictures, so I will be sure to put those up on our Instagram. It is a gorgeous plane. Uh, The restoration to it is just gorgeous, and it's got grumpy on it. I remember seeing the post from her as she was going to pick it up. Pretty exciting. And then on the episode, you mentioned March Air Base Museum, Kelly. She said, I also wanted to mention the March Air Base Museum in Riverside, California. It is highly haunted. Workers there have seen many apparitions. Good old Zach Baggins did an episode on it, too, if you want to check that out. I attended a commemorative Air Force dinner at the museum and got some strange vibes while viewing some of the displays. It was a very cool experience. Very, very cool. The last time I was there, I was young. Gosh, I think it was before I even had the boys. We'll have to add it to our list. Yes, indeed. We can go check it out when we're there visiting Dad. Cindy messaged us over on Patreon and let us know that it's not just the buildings that we talked about that are haunted, that some of the old housing there is haunted as well because she'd lived there for a couple of years. So oh, I was wow. like, do tell. We lived in some of the older housing units and had a lot of odd things happen. We would get odd smells and noises. Our portion had been two units originally, but was combined into one. I remember getting certain sounds and smells in each of the areas that had been kitchens or on the original floor plans. It was labeled the woman's area. (laughs) Like one would smell coffee in the morning and the other side would smell like cinnamon when we weren't cooking. At least it's good smells. Yeah. We also had a lot of water issues, turning on by themselves, toilets flushing on their own, but never the one in the newer add-on toilet bathroom just the old one that would have been used before. There was one spot where there had been a door, but it was covered over. We used to hear a slamming door at about the same time every day, but there was no door there. Wow. There were other older brick houses actually on base for the higher ranking folks. I talked to someone who had to live in one. It was a requirement for the position. Usually base living is optional. I asked how they liked living in the house, and the guy said, it was awful, so haunted, like for real ghosts. I didn't believe in them until we lived there. It was a nightmare. I oh, get, wow. <laughs> she said, I guess they aren't supposed to talk about the ghosts, etc. It's very hush-hush. 
And then she said, military bases are full of that stuff. After 20 years, I've got stories. <laughs> I bet she does. Thank you for sharing those with us. Yes, thank you. And then we had a couple of interesting posts in the crew. The first one is from Janae. She said, all right, so I'm not asking this to get into a superheated religious debate, so please don't go there. I've been watching The Devil in Ohio on Netflix. It's fictional, a limited series, horror, drama, thriller about a girl who flees from a rural satanic cult. I think it's good, so check it out if you're interested. But anyways, just the way my mind works, super surface level, hypothetically speaking, as the stories go, you sell your soul to the devil, you go to hell. As the stories go, most people sell their soul for the fame, money, love, etc. But what if you sell your soul for something good, like curing cancer or ending world hunger? Do the same rules apply? Does selling your soul for something super selfless still get you tossed into hell? Would even such a bargain be struck? Kelly, do you have an opinion? I don't think that that would be a bargain that could be struck. That's exactly what I responded to it. I said, I don't even think it's up for debate because I don't think it, it's possible. The selling of your soul for something seems to be... For something sinful, typically. Yeah. You can only make that deal with the bad guy. You know, most people don't go to God and say, hey, I'll sell my soul if you do this. I mean, people do bargain with God all the time, but he doesn't work that way. Right. So whether it's for a bad thing or a good thing, I don't think it could be struck for a good thing because the evil guy is not going to do the good thing. Exactly. So I think the point is moot. But I love that her mind went there because I've never even considered that. Yeah, I haven't either. I've just always been like, oh, yeah, people sell their souls for fame and everything else. But yeah, what if you were like, well, what if I want to sell my soul? Because say you have a loved one who has cancer, the cure for cancer. So then my loved one will live. Yeah, I'll burn in hell for forever. But but she did a lot of good. Yeah. But so, yeah, I don't think that that bargain could be struck. Very interesting. What do the listeners think? We'd love to hear. And then Dewey wrote... It's 5.03 in the morning here in Vegas. My pregnant wife is sound asleep and a cat is keeping me awake walking across my ankles. Thing is, we're the only ones in the room. So Karen Miller had said, you don't have a cat? And Dewey responded, we do, but she stays in her little room at night by her lonesome. But I swear a cat was walking across me. I could feel the impressions on my skin. Then the knocking started up as usual. The other night, something slowly crawled into bed in between my wife and I, whistling, and the medicine cabinet snapped closed too. Oh my. <laughs> Dewey and his wife were in a haunted house, for sure. And my comment to him was, well, the ghost cat was just trying to get you to wake up and go fill her bowl. That could be. <laughs> <laughs> and Sandy, she had responded, we had ghost cats too. At my old 70s haunted house, the sensation of cats walking across the bottom of our bed was experienced by both my husband and me. We had real cats too, but the bedroom doors were closed off from them. Sometimes I wondered if the cats were astral projecting because they wanted to be in the bedroom so badly. Oh, my goodness. That's funny. They ripped up our carpet outside the door frames from trying to claw their way in. <laughs> I love it. Thanks for sharing all those stories, guys. We want to thank the listeners for tuning in to this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode is brought to you by our executive producers. Check out the website at historygoesbump.com.
Thank you for joining us in the sp- Thank you for joining us in the spectacular crew. Are we renaming the crew? Stop. <laughs> he had a system with the kids in town that would get him provisions. When he needed something, he would hang an American flag at the corner of his house. I wonder if we could get the kids who are, you know, walking home from school, if we hang our flag in a certain way, be like, hey, forget Instacart or Grubhub. <laughs> Can you guys run to the store for us? Some stuff. Go chase down the ice cream man for a drumstick for Diane. <laughs> actually, that's a great idea. Although I actually, I don't have any pride. I don't, it doesn't bother me. I didn't mind walking up to the ice cream truck and saying, I'm getting me a drumstick. No, I know, but (laughs) if you're having to run after them. And he named his establishment Fiddler's Green Restaurant, and it was like an English pub. And for people who live in Colorado, that name sticks out because we had a Fiddler's Green amphitheater where we would go see concerts. Oh, wow. Every year, I tell you, I used to listen to a, like it was a 1950s classic radio station when I was a teenager, because that's what I was into. I was into the new wave music too, but I love my 50s and 60s. We had a local radio station called Cool FM. Ours was Cola with a K. Okay. (laughs) And they would host a cool concert every single summer and bring out all these old acts, kind of like how Epcot does it now. Right. And so you'd go see Paul Revere and the Raiders and the Turtles and Herman's Hermits and stuff like that at Fiddler's Green. I remember that. So when I saw that name, that's immediately what came to mind for me. I'm telling you the menu on this place. Oh, if you live in the area, you got to go there. It looks like it's just scrumptious. I think it's probably expensive, too, because it's, you know, kind of that. You know, when you went to dinner for prom and stuff and you go to the really fancy, expensive restaurant as a kid and you're used to going to a place where they fill up the plate and you can't even eat everything on it. You go to one of these fancy restaurants and they bring you out five little shrimp and that's like 30 bucks. It's all about the presentation, babe. But it sure looks pretty. Tastes great. Less filling. (laughs) That's in honor of the Super Bowl coming up. We're recording the day before, so that takes you back to some old commercials. The Massachusetts Legislature... I cannot say... S S is before legislature. I can't even say legislature. Legislature is like rule, horror. Just There's words that they should not (laughs) exist because you can't say them. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer.